Coming up this week, Joanna Penn joins us to talk about the successful author mindset, and Hans Hershey is here as part of the 2016 GRL blog tour. Welcome to the Big Gay Fiction Podcast, the show for readers and writers of gay romance fiction. If you can read it, write it, watch it, or listen to it, these two guys are going to talk about it. Now, here are your hosts, Jeff Adams and Will Knauss. Welcome to episode 44 of Jeff and Will's Big Gay Fiction Podcast. I'm Jeff from JeffAdamsWrites.com. And I'm Will from WillKanaus.com. I like that little different alliteration to get us open there. <laughs> Try something new. There you go. Keep it as fresh and edgy. Actually, After it's, four- like the, it's like the exact opposite of fresh and edgy. Oh, yeah, well, I don't know. Anyway. How you doing today? I'm fine. You had a busy week. You were out of town. I was out of town, did a whole bunch of stuff. Uh, Writing-wise, I got Love's Opening Night uh, back to Dream Spinner with the first round of edits done. Cool. Learned a lot of good stuff on that, so I was really pleased with how that edit turned out. Uh, also got uh, the first chapter of Winger Book 2 off to my uh, writing group to look at. Mm. Which is cool. Uh, while I was in LA, I did a couple things too, and I wish you had been there. It was sad that you weren't. Yeah, you did a lot of cool, fancy things. Yeah. So I went to see Grey Gardens at the Amundsen Theater, mm-hmm. uh, and this particular uh, production of the musical starred uh, Betty Buckley and Rachel York, which was like, let's just swoon over those two actresses for a moment. Yeah, they're amazing. Um, the production was really, really awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, we saw it back in 2006 uh, with Christine Ebersol on Broadway. Uh, and these two certainly live up to that production. Cool. Um, Rachel York in the dual role of young Edie and uh, then Edith in the second act uh, was outstanding. And Betty Buckley taking over for the mother in act two was also quite good. Um, I've got a review up on jeffandwill.com uh, for that. And if you're in the L.A. area, Greg Gardens continues at the Amundsen through August 14th. So there you go. Um, I also got to go to the romance bookstore, The Ripped Ballas. On Monday night, uh, it is so cool, people. If you live in LA, if you're in that in the Southern California area, you really have to go. Uh, it's a great bookstore. We'll have the link to it in the show notes. We did a quick. I did a quick Facebook live while I was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, met B, who is one of the uh, two owners. Uh, we're going to have them on the show at some point. Uh, they were eager to come on the show, so I talked to them about how they decided to start a bookstore, which, as we know, is not exactly the surest thing to start in this day and age. Uh, and how they choose to stock the store, what they want to put in the store, and what they want the store to be. It's got a nice LGBT section with uh, both contemporary and paranormal and a new adult and young adult. And cool. It was really cool. I'll link up to the to the Facebook Live part, too. Yeah. 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 Um, that's all I did in L.A. this week. I did go catch Star Trek Beyond uh, just before we did our recording today. Um, it falls in the middle of the Star Trek spectrum for me. It's not as crappy as, let's say, Nemesis or Final Frontier or the motion picture. It is not at the top of the spectrum with Wrath of Khan, Voyage Home, and um, First Contact, which was the Next Generation Borg movie. Uh, It's at its best when the crew is interacting with each other and solving the problem and even their interpersonal stuff, like the stuff that's been going on with Spock and Uhura, Getting to meet Chekhov's, uh, not Chekhov's husband, uh, Sulu's husband, mm-hmm. uh, was a really nice moment. Um, battle sequences, you could tell it was done by somebody who directed Fast and the Furious, because I think if I'd seen it in 3D, I would have been motion sick. 
frankly, because it was it was kind of dark and there's a lot going on and a lot of sushi camera angles that were not necessary in, in my personal view of action film. <laughs> but uh, I mean, it's it was a, it was an okay story, little derivative, but the crew stuff really brought it home, and they have a really nice several nice moments uh, in memory of Leonard Nimoy, cool, and his Mister Spock in that film. Good, yeah, sounds nice. <laughs> Time now for the GRL Guest Author Spotlight. We're happy to welcome Hans Hershey to the podcast as part of the official 2016 GRL blog tour. Hans has been writing stories ever since he was a child. Adulthood and the demands of corporate life put it into his fictional writing for over 20 years. A global executive in training and channel development, Hans has traveled the world and published a couple of non-fictional titles. The birth of his son and the subsequent parental leave provided him with a much-needed breathing hole and the opportunity to once again unleash his creative writing. Having little influence over his brain's creative workings, he simply indulges it and goes with the flow. However, the deep passion for a better world, for love and tolerance, are a red thread throughout both his creative and nonfiction work. He lives with his husband, son, and pets on a small island off the west coast of Sweden. Thanks for being with us, Hans. Thank you for having me, Jeff. Sounds lovely there on the west coast of Sweden. It does, and I just noticed this morning on Facebook, we're getting a hot dog stand on the island. It's like, yay, we're joint <laughs> civilization. So let, let's start out with your latest, which is called Shorts, uh, which came out in early July. Tell us what that's yeah. about. Um, Shorts is a collection of short stories that I've written over the past, uh, actually, more than 20 years. The oldest one is more than 20 years old. Um, and the, the last one I wrote was finished probably a few weeks before it went into editing. So, yeah, but most of them were written in the last two years. And so it's just kind of like a collection of all the short stories I've ever written. Um, they're all LGBT. So for the first time, um, I've been able to write something that wasn't gay and, and I mean, gay, gay men. Uh, so... So there's stories about lesbian women, there's transgender stories in there. So um, there's, so, and, and that, I thought that was very, very interesting to be able to branch out and do something different. So, What was it like looking at some of those early stories as you prepared to put the collection out? Because that's a, that's a large span of writing. It is. Well, there's, it's only really just that one that I wrote that was... That was the, before I went into corporate. I was, that was my storm and drunk uh, time as a young 20-year-old. Uh, and, and I wrote the Christmas story way back then. And the reason why I wanted to include it is, is to show people just how much the world has changed for us since 1990 when I wrote that story and today. Because when I wrote that, that Christmas story, um, for me, the goal in life in terms of love was to find a boyfriend and the stretch goal may have been to maybe potentially live together but getting married having children you know that was that was that was off the radar that was not even fathomable for any of us and and that's why I wanted to include that story because because it shows that within our lifespan so much has changed for the better you know and here I am sitting one floor above my husband and son, who are hopefully leaving us alone so I can do this interview. Um, and it, it's, it's amazing, you know, it's, and, and it's, it's kind of like a tribute to my younger me. 
Um, whereas the other stories were written, you know, in the past two to three years. And uh, there's one story which is actually about, which is an, a real nightmare I had, uh, which, which I, I had this dream after the Russians invaded the Ukraine. Um, there are a lot of people who felt, okay, this is it. They're not going to stop. And, and, and interestingly enough, at the recent NATO summit, uh, NATO pledged additional forces to support the Baltic countries and Poland. And so there's this real fear up here in the northern European region that you never know with the Russians, you know. And I had this nightmare, I was about a year and a half ago, just shortly after the invasion to the Crimean Peninsula, that the Russians would just keep going. They would go into Finland, then come into Sweden, and with their uh, deep love for everything gay, I figured we would have to be on the run. And so what I did is I packed up my family in the dream, and, and we fled the country. And uh, I, in the story, which I then recount the dream, you know, it's, it's, it's eerie, you know, because you have this war breaking out in Europe, and you have these huge streams of refugees um, obviously going the other way. But when you then, about nine months after I've written the story, you, you, watched, uh, you watched the refugee streams coming north on TV. And it looked eerily like the mental images I had in my dream and in my story. And, and that's really kind of, that really still uh, puts an extra nerve in that story. Because trying to understand what it is like uh, to leave everything behind, I mean, in terms of pets, which was really difficult because we love our cats. But when you realize you won't be able to take them with you, um, when you realize, okay, this is where we have to leave the car, this is where you have to leave the pets, this is where you have to leave your suitcase, mm -hmm. and then you end up in this refugee camp literally with the clothes you have on your body. Now, um, so, so, so yeah, that was, that was interesting. That's one of my favorite stories in, in, in that whole book because it kind of showcases, um, what, what hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people have been going through coming North, but from a somewhat different perspective. Now you've got another book coming out in September. Oh yeah. Which is the last book of the Jonathan trilogy. Uh-huh. Tell us a little bit about that trilogy for the folks who may not be, be aware of it. Is there anybody out there who's not aware of it yet? <laughs> Just easy. Um, oh, God. Um, Jonathan's Hope was the first book I published. It was the second one I wrote, but it was the first one. It beat the other book by two days, um, The Mysteries of Amazon. You know, So it, it hit the markets. And it was – the thing is, I have learned so much between – the first publication in 2013 and today about the whole publication industry and yada, yada, yada. Uh, I put those two first books out there without knowing anything about the publishing world. And so needless to say, I was surprised um, how well Jonathan's Hope was received. Now, it was a standalone story. It's about young Jonathan, 17 years old. Uh, it's late October. And his father, for reasons that you have to read about, tosses him out into a forest to die. He wants to get rid of his son. And he abandons him there. And after a few days out in the forest, Jonathan, with his last force and strength and will, he finds a cabin in the middle of nowhere where he finds Dan, 
uh, Dan, who's kind of a widower, he lost his boyfriend to a, a hunting accident. He kind of retreated into the forest and lives by himself. He's a journalist. And, and those two men kind of find ways to find back to life together. Um, and when I wrote the story, I wrote an epilogue to it. And the epilogue is very important to me because the epilogue kind of uh, showcases the promise of uh, two gay men starting a family. And the way it does it is the epilogue actually shows how big that family has grown with kids and grandkids and the first great-grandchild on the way. Uh, but it's a very bittersweet ending, and I never intended for that to continue. But you know what it's like. You've written series two. So um, people come back and they say, well, you know, I'm curious. What happened? What happened? What's happening next? And, and they've been bugging me and bugging me and bugging me for you know, years now. And then finally, in the summer of 2015, I had a dream that Jonathan and Dan came to me in a dream. And I thought, oh, okay, well, I'm listening. And, and I decided in the fall last year, I said, okay, I'll write a sequel. And, and you know, no, well, one book, one sequel. And so I wrote that sequel. And I had, on, on the outset, I had this... Um, I made a decision how that book would end, a very, very conscious decision that Jonathan would have to die at the end of the second book to absolutely make sure that there would never, ever, ever be a third book or any nagging from readers because I don't do series. I am a standalone writer. I don't write series. So, and I just, um, so I thought it was an interesting experiment. Never again. And when I was done, um, with the second book and you actually get to this point where you have to write what you know is going to happen I, with my brain I never know how it's going to happen I mean it's, it's, it's easy to say okay you write a book about these two guys and at the end he's going to die but it's another thing when you're actually seeing there and you see the words appear on your screen and, and you read what your brain is coming up with and all of a sudden I'm, I'm sitting there my, uh, I'm bawling my eyes out. I'm, I've, it, this, and, and I'm not exaggerating. Losing Jonathan to me was worse than losing my mother two years ago. It was affecting me uh, still to this day. This is very, very difficult and very traumatic. So four hours later, my husband comes home. I'm still crying. Um, and, and I read the scene to him. I cry some more. And, and I talk to my publisher and I say, what am I going to do? I just, I can't leave it like this, you know? Um, and you'll have to read the book to understand why, but what happens is uh, Jonathan gets married to a very nice younger man and, and, and I just couldn't let that poor bastard be there at the end of the book all by himself, a widower. Um, and so I decided to, to just keep writing. Next morning, I just kept on writing. And that's Jonathan's legacy. So that's the third book, uh, which is not about the main characters for the, of the for first two novels, but Mark, the, the widower, and the kids, and the grandkids, and the great-grandchildren. I mean, there's, there's a huge... And it's kind of interesting. I was... Um, when I did the trailer for, for the book, I, um, I was asking myself some questions, and one of the questions was key scenes in, in, 
in that book. And in the last book, there's a scene where the entire clan goes on vacation. You know, the kids, the grandkids, the great-grandkids, and the people they marry into and their parents. So it's like a huge, it's like this gigantic family vacation. And, and then I remembered that in the very first book, uh, about a month after Jonathan and Dan meet, it's Christmas. And the difference, I mean, there's 70 years in between. We're talking about this huge family saga. There's 70 years in between, and you have a Christmas with two people, all alone in a forest cabin, you know, by a frozen lake. And you have this huge family gathering of their offspring, their creation, you know, 70 years down the, the lane in a huge Disney resort in Florida. You know? And it's, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's, th those three books are very different. But, but, I mean, if you look at it, to me, just to be able to, to, to highlight and to, talk, to tell the story of how one gay couple can create this huge, big family, this dynasty, I thought that was very interesting. So. Mm -hmm. it's, good, it's good to see those kind of, that kind of story in this day and age, too. It is, yeah, and I can't wait for people to read it. Um, and, you know, it's, it's very different. It's very unusual. It's, I don't think I've ever read anything like it, you know. I mean, still to this day and age, I, when a lot of the gay fiction you read ends with the characters. And I'm not talking romance, but, but a lot in, in ordinary gay fiction, still there's a lot of misery. There's still a lot of unhappiness in the end. And, and maybe the hope of a, a happy, successful relationship. But I've never read a book where there's actually, you know, this kind of family building going on, which is fairly common in, in, in head fiction. Mm -hmm. What are you looking forward to in Kansas City? Oh, uh, a lot of things. Um, I'm sponsoring the event very heavily this year. So we are having a... Um, fun fair on Friday afternoon, and we've got some really, really fun things scheduled. Uh, there's 10 authors of us, and we're having some kind of uh, Jeopardy, writing Jeopardy scheduled with a truth or dare component attached to raise some money for the Trevor Fund, um, because that's kind of my, my big thing is homeless kids. I really want to help homeless children, and uh, so that's I'm really looking forward to that, and apart from Apart from that, just seeing friends again and, and getting that rush of energy from all the meetings with readers and all the crazy stuff happening. And What's the best way for everyone to keep up with you? Oh, um, God, Google me, and then you just follow the lead. I mean, you Google my name, I'm everywhere. It's, it's Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, my blog, my website. Okay. And we'll be linking up to all that stuff in the show notes as well. Yeah, thank you. So that, I'm, I'm easy to follow. Excellent. Well, Hans, thank you so much for spending some time with us. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. We look forward to seeing you in Kansas. You can follow the GRL Blog Tour by going to gayromlit.com slash 2016 blog tour. So right after that interview, I actually uh, was talking to Hans, and I got added to his daring author trivia for the fun fair. So I'll be one of the 10 authors uh, participating in that. So if you're at GRL, come to the fun fair on Friday afternoon and play some trivia with us. It'll be a lot of fun. And, of course, we have to remind you that uh, we've teamed up with the authors that we're hosting uh, on the blog tour for a big giveaway. 7-Inch Fire Tablet is on the line with books from many of the authors that we're hosting uh, on the GRL tour. 
plus books from myself, as well as a package from Wild City Press uh, and the authors from them who are attending GRL. You can see the raffle copter on episode 44 of the show notes to enter. Uh, and the, B, the big GRL blog tour giveaway runs through Sunday, October 23rd. Now, your bonus word for this week, which I probably should have given in the last segment, is actually in honor of Grey Garden. So this week the word is gray. 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 Keep that in mind when you're entering the Rathlocopter. That's right. Get extra bonus entries. Good. That'll be cool. Yeah. It's your turn to talk now because I've jibber jabbered I'm going to so do much. some talking now. Yeah. Um, it's my, my pleasure to introduce an interview we did with someone who I think is, uh, she's just fun and insightful and uh, amazing all around terrific person, mm-hmm. Joanna Penn. Now, for those of you who have never heard of Joanna, Joanna is a thriller author. She writes under the name J.F. Penn, but she also runs a website and a podcast, The Creative Pen, and it's, it is an essential resource, in my opinion. Absolutely. Uh, uh, if you're an author or an independent author who uh, self-publishes, you really need to be paying attention to... Um, her podcast, what she has to say, and some of the amazing guests she has on her show. Um, mm-hmm. We had the great pleasure to have her come on our show, and she's going to talk about her latest nonfiction book for authors, The Successful Author Mindset. We're excited to welcome Joanna Penn to the podcast. Joanna is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling thriller author, as well as a writer of nonfiction books for authors. She's an independent author who has written 20 titles and sold over 450,000 books in 74 countries in five languages. The Creative Pen is where she offers information and inspiration on writing, self-publishing, book marketing, and how to make a living with your writing through articles, podcast episodes, videos, books, and courses. Her latest book for authors is The Successful Author Mindset, which came out in July. Joanna, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me on the show, guys. I'm really pleased to be here. So we just want to dive right into the questions because we've got so much that we want to talk to you about. Uh, Starting with mindset for the new mindset book, what do you find are the most common mindset issues for authors? Yeah, well, this this was so interesting because, you know, I wanted to write the mindset book because I think we all actually suffer exactly the same stuff. Like, I think what's kind of surprising is that even the top authors in the business um, suffer from some of these same issues. And when I when I was writing the book, I thought I, I need to put them in the order that people suffer them. So so the very first chapter of the book is about self-doubt and imposter syndrome, because I think this is the biggest issue um, that we all suffer. So even authors as, you know, David Morell, for example, who, you know, at Thriller Fest, I write thrillers, so I tend to talk about thrillers. Um, David Morell is famous for Rambo, the character of Rambo, and, you know, has been publishing the last 50 years, um, you know, really veteran of the business, you know, says that when he reads his words he thinks they're crap and you know the self-doubt over whether this next book will sell or you know whether you know we will actually be able to make any money from a book or whether it's any good you know this or whether you can even call yourself a writer Um, we've just had a, um, a festival here in the UK 
And I, you know, in in the Facebook groups that you hear, you know, authors saying, oh, I just sat in the corner because I just felt really inadequate. And these are prize winning authors, uh, you know, who most people would see on the front of a book, you know, whose name on the front of the book and think, wow, they're like the top of the career. Um, So I think that's probably the first thing is to understand that everyone has this self-doubt and imposter syndrome is literally just the extension of self-doubt. So it's when you are, you know, a New York Times bestselling author and you've sold all these books and you're what most people would think of as successful, you're sitting there thinking, oh my goodness, you know, they think I'm an author, but what if this next book is a flop? And uh, so, so that's that's probably the biggest issue, I think. And every author will suffer self-doubt at some point. It never goes away. It just changes as part of the process. Mm-hmm. I liked how you put the book together because it really flowed, I thought, from kind of the the basic issues on, you know, through to like when you're a career author and the issues that you battle there. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was, uh, I think when I was doing it, and it was a very difficult book to write, um, because obviously, it's quite personal, and I put my own diary entries in it and that type of thing. But I, I what's been interesting is people have said, uh, it's like you read my mind. And I was, I was very scared. I had a lot of self-doubt about putting this book out there because I thought, oh no, people are going to read it and then they're, you know, I am an imposter and I, I do feel all these things. But actually, when you're honest about how you feel, that's when people resonate with you. And I'd urge people listening, you know, if you are writing, um, then just really put yourself onto the page and that is what will resonate with people is being real and kind of owning up to who you are even if you're writing under a pen name you know you're still being real in an emotional sense and that is what resonates with people Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. what are the mindset issues have you found that are more difficult to battle uh well i mean personally well, I guess let's say another uh, common fear, and then I'll get on to personally, but um, a common fear is this fear of rejection and fear of criticism. And this holds a lot of people back, with, however they publish. Obviously, fear of rejection, you get that if you submit to agents, submit to publishers. But also now we get it um, as indie authors from uh, reviews. So that, um, you know, fear of rejection from new readers. So the fear of the one-star review, um, you know, fear of rejection from our peers, if we write something that is um, difficult in some way or you know one of the reasons people use pseudonyms in the romance space is because it's not acceptable in many places to write some of the stuff that people write. So um, this this fear of rejection, criticism, fear of failure, a lot of this stuff uh, is bound up in um, the, I guess the training we've had over many years and the schooling and our families and these big, big issues that we just can't hope to overcome. We just have to face them. And for me, um, this sort of manifested in uh, self-censorship. So I... I'm a very happy, smiley, jolly person. Um, my nonfiction is very upbeat, very self-help, but I write darker fiction. So and my favorite author would be Stephen King. And, you know, I, I'm moving, you know, I'm in the action adventure thriller genre, but some of my writing is towards the darker end. So the London Psychic series is quite dark and I write some violence. Um, and this type of stuff is, you know, even my mum said, why can't you write something nice? You know, and when people say like, why can't you write something that's more like Hilary Mantel was the classic quote, <laughs> who wrote Wolf Hole, this historical, you know, Booker Prize winning literary fiction that took 10 years to write. Um, and this, you know, it's still obviously, it still grates on me that kind of why can't you write something nice so I self-censored until my fifth book 
I, you know, and then in my fifth book, which was Desecration, and you can tell a lot from the title, I just let it all, <laughs> let it all hang out. And I think this is part of that emotional journey that you have to go on. And finding your voice is a lot about sort of getting over that fear of judgment, um, fear of failure and letting it be out there. So uh, those are kind of, I guess, some of the more deeper issues. And certainly my own issue is always fighting um, sort of, you know, censor- self-censorship. Mm-hmm. Now, when we were setting up this interview, we sent you a blog post uh, from an author who's a friend of ours. And we've seen a number of posts like it lately from authors who I think are going through several things. You know, they're comparing to others. They're not quite satisfied with where their career is and, and issues like that. What do you recommend to those authors to kind of help get them into a better mindset, I guess, is, is just the simple way to put it. Yeah. So, well, on that comparisonitis thing, as I call it, um, again, that's very common. I suffer from it too. But I did, um, last weekend, I actually walked 100 kilometers. I did this 100 kilometer race to the stones. And that taught me a lot about comparisonitis, right? Because, um, so it was 50K and then I slept and then I did 50K. The purse, and it took me around 26 hours to walk the 100K. The winner took eight hours. <laughs> And I came in in the very like last quartile of people on the end of Sunday, but a whole load of people never even finished. And when I've been thinking about this a lot, I've been thinking this is exactly like the writer's journey and this comparisonitis thing. I cannot, I mean, I've been training for six months, right? And there's a lot of people listening who'd be like, I can't do 100K. And it's like, okay, sure, because you haven't done the training, but there's no way I could have done it in eight hours. So how can I compare myself to the person who is an ultra marathon runner and how can the person who hasn't done any training compare themselves to me? So this is the same with our writing journey, but we seem to think that writing everyone should be on the same level. So the comparisonitis for me is, okay, how can I compare myself with Stephen King? I can't. He is like the ultra marathon runner. He's been writing training for the last 40 odd years since, you know, he started writing like age seven or something ridiculous. And in the same way, you know, we have to think of our writing journey this well what is why are you doing this you know to me this is a lifelong journey it's you know you can learn new stuff as a writer until you die and so if you're going to be writing until you die how can you be at the top of the game right now you know I'm 41 I hope I'm not quite middle-aged yet you know I'd like to get to 90 fit 90 year old so I have a long way to go so that's why I think the very first thing is we need to stop comparing ourselves to other writers. You don't know how long they've been writing, how many words they've written, how many different genres they've published in, how many names they've used. You know, you just can't compare apples with apples in this writing space. So that's the first thing. The second thing is when I I looked at that blog post, obviously there's the standard issues of self-doubt, fear of failure, um, but also not making enough uh, money from the books. And, you know, one with love, saying with love, you have to look after your psyche and your, you know, your self-doubt, be nice to yourself. And then you have to kick yourself up the ass and say, seriously, no one owes you a living. Uh, Certainly not from writing, certainly not from your art. How many artists actually make a living from their art? The the reality is that most people um, have other jobs. Now, for me, my other jobs, you know, I have 
13, 12 fiction books now. And I like a good living. I wouldn't say that, that those 12 books make me a full-time living still, but I have eight non-fiction books. I do courses, I do speaking, I do other things that make me income that could be equated to like day job income. So this is what I would say to people. It's like, why are you writing if you went into this to make as much money as a day job, then it takes a while. <laughs> as any job, you know, uh, you have to become a better writer and get a backlist. Uh, yeah, so basically be nice on one hand and be gentle with yourself. And on the other hand, go seriously, just like do the work and put in the time create the backlist and also consider writing in other genres. You know, as you know, we briefly discussed before the show, you don't have to just write in games. You could write straight romance or you could write other other genres, sci-fi, fantasy, whatever else you want to write, non-fiction. Um, there's lots of things that we can write and we can use our writing skills to do. So um, I hope that's not too hardcore. <laughs> I think you make a good point about the other genres. Uh, we talked a little bit before we started about, you know, Data Guy's review of of the romance genre and how gay gay romance sits squarely in the middle of of mm. the of the high and the low. Uh, and you also make a good point about nonfiction because you do make a good chunk of your income, as we know, because you put your numbers out there from your nonfiction books. Yeah, exactly. And I actually find like. Um, you know, I finished my last novel, I think it was March or something. We're in July and I wrote a nonfiction and I'm now starting to work on the next fiction and the next nonfiction. Um, writing in different genres can be like a palate cleanser and can actually help you renew that energy because let's face it, if you do go all out on a novel, which you should, never save anything for the next book because, you know, the creative well will refill itself. Um, but when you empty yourself into a book, and I also put this in the in the mindset book, the feeling of being empty at the end of writing a book is completely normal. And if you don't feel empty, then you haven't given enough. But the thing is, then you need time to fill up that creative well again. And that takes time. Whereas actually writing nonfiction is much easier than writing fiction, because it's like you pick a topic, and then you research the topic, and then you write chapters on the topic. Whereas a novel is far more complex. And I think one of the issues right now in the indie author space, especially romance, is this this sort of you must publish fast, you must publish often, and people are burning out. And that's an issue. So to stop burnout, you have to do something else. So why not write a nonfiction or why not write something completely different um, or do some freelance writing, you know, do some paid blog posts, do some journalism, do something else if you want to earn with your writing that isn't just the one genre that you've been writing in. Mm -hmm. you, you use the word palate cleanser, uh, writing your nonfiction books between the uh, fiction, the thrillers that you write. Um, for those who are listening, you've written some really terrific stuff about book marketing, about the business of being an author. Um, both uh, those books we both love to death. Um, mm -hmm. Do you do you think those nonfiction titles are uh, a way not only to uh, cleanse your palate but also to examine uh, your own mindset, your own the way you approach your author business? Yeah, and like many people, I think many writers, I don't really 
know what I think until I write a book on it. So, yeah. Yeah. so you know, when I wrote, um, you know, Business for Authors, How to Be an Author Entrepreneur, I was actually trying to make sure my own business was robust enough. And as I did, you know, I basically, uh, there's a really good book called The Personal MBA. Uh, I think it's Josh Kaufman. Anyway, so I got that book and I was like, okay, I, I need to go through this book and make sure my business stands up to the rigor of any other business. And in, in using that as a starting point, that's how I ended up writing Business for Authors, which then also helps other authors um, become author entrepreneurs. So you're exactly right. I want to, um, you know, write the books that enable me to learn about a topic. So when I first wrote How to Market a Book, the first edition, and I'm about to start on the third edition, um, but that first edition, I was learning book marketing at the time. And again, I wanted to codify what I thought in my head, and then it would help other people. And I was just, it's funny because um, I'm going to write a book on how to write a novel and I think I'm ready for that now because I've written 12 and I feel like okay I think I need to work out how I write a novel (laughs) and maybe improve the process so I will do that but I've got other ideas like for example and this is what's great about writing of course you always get more ideas um we just talked about self-censorship and I did a lot of psychology earlier in my career and so I want to write about the Jungian Carl Jung's shadow side um and the importance of the dark side of our personalities and how you can use that and I'm like okay well I have to write a book on the shadow that that at some point I will do that so that goes into the mix as something else I want to really research and understand so if people are thinking oh maybe I could write nonfiction, think about any topic that you're interested in um, that you're curious about or maybe you you're already an almost expert in it um, and that could be anything you know like I have a friend who does a lot of knitting knitting is a really big um, uh, sort of genre in fiction and nonfiction. Um, or you know um, my husband's into jujitsu you know you can do stuff on anything you like it doesn't have to be about writing that just happens to be my obsession but I'm definitely looking to expand into um, other topics over time. Uh, I wanted to ask about uh, your love of Stephen Pressfield. Um, <laughs> we, we, are, we are fans of your show, The Creative Pen, and you've spoken about Stephen Pressfield several times. Uh, we have read his books. Um, anyone listening who, who hasn't read, you know, The War of Art, uh, definitely should, you know, writers or creatives in general. It's an amazing book. Um, what sort of struck me is Pressfield takes a sort of, he, he presents his subject in little kind of like bite-sized nuggets. There mm. are little golden pieces of information that you can take away. Uh, and I felt that you present your book in sort of a, a similar manner. Uh, you mm. tackle... Um, different problems, different mindset issues that authors have uh, in in a similar way. Did he influence the way you sort of um, attacked the subject and laid out the book? Yeah, I I think definitely... I mean, I, of course, I hear worship Stephen Pressfield. And uh, I, when I interviewed him on my podcast, I was like a ridiculous fangirl. <laughs> and I was kind of all giggly and ridiculous. Um, but I think he I think he quite liked that. Um, but yes, I think what's happened also in the nonfiction space, um, and of course, The War of Art is a very slim book. Yeah. Um, Turn, Turning Pro, which is the kind of the one that goes a bit further, which I still reread several times a year because it's so hardcore. Um, 
you know, is very slim as well. Um, Seth Godin is another one who's writing small nonfiction. I think what's happened is it used to be that, but you know, because publishers ordered books to fit on shelves and had to have really big, you know, spines that what nonfiction books used to be much longer. Mm -hmm. And now it's like, it's acceptable to write a short nonfiction book and price it accordingly. So, um, you know, the mindset book, uh, is is like uh, I guess a novella length in terms of fiction, um, and you would say also Stephen Pressfield's nonfiction is novella length, even though he writes like massive fiction. Um, so yes, definitely, I think I've um, modelled his approach to the chapters, but it's also what I like to read. Um, what I find with a lot of nonfiction that's traditionally published is it's so overly packed packed with kind of unnecessary material and you can tell this there's fluff yeah yeah there's fluff in like they restate the same thing over Mm. and over again in a different way and it's just like mm, and you can tell with how many things are highlighted whereas you know a Stephen Pressfield book and I hope with my books at some point every single paragraph should have something highlighted in yes (laughs) (laughs) because it's a different experience to fiction like fiction you shouldn't like if you find fiction books that have been highlighted they're usually literary fiction or maybe there's a couple of highlights in our in our novels but usually people want to sink in and just relax whereas I feel non-fiction should earn its money by giving a lot of, of value in a small amount of space mm-hmm. Spe- well speaking of giving value um, mm-hmm. this new book the mindset book uh, you have a couple of different editions. You have the ebook edition, of course, the print edition and this time you've also done a workbook uh, and I was curious what um what extra work did you put into the I was before okay before <laughs> before we came on this interview I was actually in the other room and I was on Amazon uh looking at the workbook mm. and I was curious as to um first of all why you decided to do a workbook and what is uh what's different about the workbook as compared to the the text of the uh, uh, regular book yeah, so um, uh, I've also done an audio book, which I've self-narrated yes, yeah. uh, as well. So basically, the idea in general is to turn our books into uh, multiple streams of income. So the workbook idea, um, and I, I I think I did one because I did an adult colouring book with my dad um, back in January, um, the English Country House and Garden fine art colouring book and we did a notebook version of that which is essentially exactly the same images but with notebook pages in between and the thing is it costs um you know I I use a um, outsourced designer and it would cost me around sixty dollars to get a workbook version of a book made Mm -hmm. which is nothing right so why not create a version of a book um, that is a self-help book with with questions in um, into a notebook. So literally all I did um, was, and the the workbook is uh, exactly the same uh, in terms of the text, but it has um, extra pages in where you can actually write the answers, you know, into the book if you want to. And it's a different size. So it's a six by nine instead of a five by eight. And, uh, you know, so some people just want to have the, the book and some people like to write in it. Um, but because it cost me barely anything to get an extra version, I just thought, well, why not? Um, and some people really like that. So I've had, you know, people send me pictures of them writing in uh, things. Um, so I'm definitely going to, in the future, if, 
it's appropriate. So like I think with how to market a book, for example, I wouldn't do a workbook version of that. Um, but, uh, you know, how to make a living with your writing, for example, that might lend itself to doing a workbook version. Um, so that that's kind of why I did it. And I think if you're writing anything where you're asking questions of the audience, of the reader, uh, you, you could you could do that. I mean, why not? How do you find that your mindset has evolved over your career and, and along with how you manage the issues when you have them? Yeah, so I think the biggest the biggest change is the re, is the reality or the realizing that other people feel exactly the same. And I don't think things have changed as in I still have self-doubt. I still have this empty feeling when I finish a book, you know, this kind of feeling that, oh no, I'm never ever going to write a book again. I feel so empty. What's going to happen now? Um, I now recognize that that is just part of the process. Um, I recognize that when I struggle with a a full length book, I'm not a a detailed outliner. So around 25 to 35, 5,000 words, I will suffer a problem and then I will have to do some replotting. But now I understand that's part of the process. Um, You know, so I think the main thing is that when I started writing, which is actually now 10 years ago, (laughs) 10 years I started writing my first nonfiction book, um, I now understand my own psychological process and I keep journals and I write things down. But it's like, okay, so I'm now I'm empty. I now need to start filling my creative well again, um, for example. So at the moment, I'm starting to do research for End of Days, which is um, my next arcane thriller. And, you know, I, I did a crazy thing. I came up for the ti- with the title, put it on pre-order, and then went, oh dear, I've just called a book End of Days, which kind of makes it, you know, there's going to be some expectation around <laughs> what that book's going to have in it. But also you need to do something original. So I have had a little bit of concern about that. But but I understand that when I do research, uh, stuff will emerge from the world. And as ever, it has um, synchronicity, serendipity, whatever you want to call it, this stuff will appear in the world when you start researching. So I think that's the biggest shift for me is this realisation of the creative process. And also... Um, I guess just letting go and relaxing a bit more as well. The I think when you when you're writing that first book, it's like everything is bound up in this one book. It's like the most important thing ever. And then when you put the book out there, um, you realise that it's just the beginning of something else. Um, and in fact, I, you know, I have a, this chapter on anticlimax and creative dissatisfaction, which I wondered whether to put in there. And I've actually said on it, don't read this if you're writing your first novel. Because <laughs> exactly, yeah. I, I, I don't think people want to know that. And they actually think that it is the pinnacle. Publishing that first book is the pinnacle. Well, it's not. It's like, actually, the writing is the point. And yeah, so I think, uh, yeah, those are some of the things. You mentioned the journals. In, in, what was it like going back through all that? Because I really felt like you laid yourself bare in some of those chapters. And it's like, wow, I mean, that's brave what you just put on the page there. Oh, and I'm glad you thought it was brave because I was really worried about putting my journal stuff on there um, because of exactly that reason. It was like, uh, what if people read it and they don't feel the same way? <laughs> I mean, that would have been pretty awful. People, you know, I was, in a way, I was expecting a whole load of email that said, 
I never feel like that, you know, but that didn't happen, thank- thankfully. So what I did is I actually went through, um, you know, like the last 10 years pretty much of my journals and, uh, you know, typed out parts of it. And I think what's interesting with writing, I don't know if you guys find this, but I find uh, when I write stuff down, it's removed from my head. So some of these, you know, like I really believe that horror writers are the most psychologically healthy people out there because they take all of their dark stuff and they put it on the page and then they're just super nice people. Um, you know, they're not concerning at all. It's the people, it's people who write romance or happy, nice, the ones you've got to worry about. <laughs> they're the crazy ones. Yes, they know, are. <laughs> but those of us who write, write violence, we're just super nice. Um, yeah, but, but I think um, what I've, I, some of those quotes, I'm like, oh, that is hardcore, but I don't feel like that anymore. But I did at the time. So mm. that's why I put it in there because over time we learn and we change. Uh, but it's like, you know, I also have journals from when I went through a divorce back in, goodness, a while ago now because I'm in a happy second marriage. Um, but when I look at the journals of my divorce, there's like three of them over a four-month period. I don't even recognize that woman. Like the things that I was writing down, I don't recognize that person anymore. And it's the same with some of this stuff around creativity and uh, mindset. If you write it down, you can move on. But if you don't, it will stick stick in your head. So I think that's part of the magic of being a writer is, you know, journaling or writing books. You can actually remove it from your head and get on with your life. <laughs> And I, I would assume that since you've been in this now for 10 years, that the perhaps the mindset for you has changed a little bit. So you're thinking more things that are like in the third section of the book for the career writers as mm. well. I mean, do you find that to be true now? Yeah. I mean, my, I think I'm, I'm, there's two things I'm pretty obsessed with that I go on and on and on about. And, and you guys, uh, you know, know my writing and the podcast and stuff. One is this long-term thinking. Um, I think too many writers get obsessed about like today's sales, tomorrow's sales, this month's launch, whatever. Whereas actually this is a long-term, uh, journey and also that you die at some point and, so why waste any time at all writing a book you're not interested in? This is why I really, I mean, I know some people write like for, for day job money, but I consider that to be like freelance writing. If you're writing for day job money, that's all it is. But if you are writing as, uh, you know, as you, your creative muse, I guess, inspires you, um, then work on things that you really care about because we don't have much time on this earth <laughs> so I think that's really important so that's one of my obsessions is this long-term thinking and and the second one is the multiple streams of income idea as we just talked about you know with the mindset book um, I put it out on on the first day with those four different formats and the audiobook that I narrated myself um, and you know that's that to me is something that if, and the author you mentioned earlier, who's struggling with some money um, side of being a writer, this is also part of the thing. So you publish on, to me, publish on multiple platforms, although I know in romance, KDP Select is, you know, pretty powerful. Um, I'm thinking long term, you know, if you look at what's happening in Africa right now in Asia, I want to be selling to those people. And that's that's not KDP Select. You know, I, I think now only 45% of my income comes from the US. So 55% is now outside the US. That's a big shift in the last couple of years in terms of income. It used to be, you know, for many 
people, it will be 100% US and 100% ebook uh, and 100% Amazon. That's a dangerous place to be. So thinking multiple streams of income, multiple platforms, multiple formats, multiple books, multiple series, you know, thinking about it that way, what you get is, and what I've seen true for me as an author entrepreneur is every year my income expands uh, not quite exponentially but it is impacted by the choices of going wide in many senses of the word so um i think those are you know that that and that fits into taking control of your writing career and it felt like the author that you mentioned before felt control like you know i can't seem to create the thing I want to create and so for me it's about if you take control of your writing career and you make decisions for the longer term not just for next month for example then you might make different decisions around building the life that you want and also you know to be fair I spent 13 years doing a job I hated and I refuse to do that now so <laughs> so I kind of make decisions around freedom freedom's a big thing for me um, you know for example I don't want to be a publishing company for anyone else this is a big thing I get people asking me a lot and a lot of indie authors are setting up publishing companies which is fine but authors are needy <laughs> and I don't want to run a publishing company because I would spend a lot more time doing that so I I choose to do education and inspiration and sell courses not consulting time you know that type of thing so make these choices around the lifestyle you want the future you want and think long term mm -hmm. and I it's another, it's a topic for a whole other show, but I want to, I just want to let the authors know that you mentioned the audio for the mindset book and you've done, uh, I at least know you did audio for business for authors that you yourself recorded and did not go through ACX for it, but you have it available on your website and authors who don't want to, or can't take the leap to do an ACX recording can look at that as something they could have on their own website. Yeah. And I mean, obviously you need traffic to a website in order to sell from your website. And I wouldn't do it with fiction. Although I say that, do you guys know Scott Sigler? No, I know, I know the name. Yeah, no, of him. Yeah. He's like, he's like the most famous, I think, podcasting author. He's been doing his own fiction audio for must be nearly 10 years now. So he will write a chapter and he will record it and he, he's he's a you know big new york times published author traditionally published but in all his contracts he says you know i will continue to put out free audio um on my website and he's been doing it for years and people are people love him and, and you know he reads in a he'll kind of read like a try and be a woman and it will be a not great but he does it very well so i have considered what if i started reading my own fiction as well as non-fiction because I think again it's very empowering and you take control so you know I've recorded author mindset I sell it from my website I can change the price and this is the big issue with ACX right mm -hmm. I mean I don't know about you guys but my income from ACX has dropped in the last year as people have signed up for their subscription service and we get paid much less money per per recording so this is the issue with audio there was this small period where it just went nuts and was great and now it seems to have dropped off a bit so that's why I decided to sell direct um, just to see how it goes however I would say that um, we're not at a point where audio you know mp3 
I mean, podcasts are great because they can appear on your phone, right? But at the moment, if someone buys an uh, audiobook direct, it doesn't appear on their phone. So I talked to the book funnel, Damon from Book Funnel, if they mm-hmm. could do something with audiobook, you know, that it would appear on their device, that would change the game around selling audio direct. Yeah. Um, but at the moment, people have to de- pay for the MP3, download it, put it onto their device, you know, sync it up. Yeah, that the whole sideload thing. Yeah, the side only thing. Whereas what's happened with podcasting, you know, podcasting really, really took off when, um, you know, everyone used a smartphone and could subscribe and it just appears. So that was just the first part of our interview with Joanna. Uh, Next week, uh, we're going to continue our conversation. We're going to talk a little bit more about um, how authors can be successful uh, in their creative pursuits as well as in their marketing in the marketing side yeah. of, of, of being an uh, author yeah we'll talk a little bit more about the the whole business of being an author yes yeah yeah and so, don't be scared by that because <laughs> it's not as it's not as daunting as it sounds <laughs> i think it's a really terrific interview a valuable interview for our authors who are listening and hopefully for some of the readers who are listening you're going to get a little bit of a, a inside peek at what um authors uh <laughs> some of the crazy stuff they go through in order yeah. to create the amazing books that we all love to read yeah and i think also the, what we just heard about the mindset point of view things mm-hmm. too uh could be adapted to almost anybody anybody's career anybody's pursuits uh creative or otherwise yeah exactly yeah. So exactly hopefully y'all are enjoying uh joanna as much as we are by getting to bring her to you so besides joanna coming back next week for part two uh we also have lex chase with us for the 2016 GRL Block Tour. Mm-hmm. So we'll see all of you back here next week. See you guys. Thank you for listening to Jeff and Will's Big Gay Fiction Podcast. New episodes are available every Monday at iTunes and other major podcast outlets. While there, subscribe to the show and please consider leaving a review. For detailed show notes, links, and to sign up for the monthly newsletter, visit BigGayFictionPodcast.com. <laughs> <laughs>